We thank you for your ministry, church. We're, we thank you for your liberality. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Numbers, chapter 14. Numbers, chapter 14. We're going to be reading one verse, and that is verse 18. How many of you guys are ready for the Word of God? Amen. I'm excited for the whole day today, the Lord's Day, not only today's service, but tonight I'm really praying that it will be inspirational um, to us as a church. Um, very unique moment in the history of our nation, the Jesus um, people revolution. It was an incredible, um, incredible moment in time. One of those moments where you're like, man, I, God, can you do it again? God, can you pour out your spirit like that again? And I believe he will. Amen. So, Amen. Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. I ran into an article. There was a man and his family. They were looking through their grandfather's belongings. And when looking through it, they found a grenade that he had held onto. And messing with it, the grenade went off and killed the father of the family. Indiana Sheriff said in a statement, Someone reportedly pulled the pin on the device and it detonated. Responders found an adult male unresponsive at the scene and he was later declared dead. The man's two children, a 14-year-old boy and an 8-year-old woman, were wounded by the the shrapnel um, and transported to a nearby hospital. And it just caught my attention. Here it is, this man digging through a past and previous generation. And what was held on to was the death and the end to his life. And it brought to my attention something that I believe I can minister here this morning. And that is that the sin you hold on to today, the sin you don't deal with today, has the potential to lay dormant and explode in the future hands of somebody else. No doubt we know generational curses. But it's just the idea that somewhere you will hold on and not deal with something that God has dealt with you about that has been very clear to you. And later on, your children are digging through your things. Somewhere your children, your children's children, can be affected by it. Numbers 14, verse 18 says, The Lord is slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love, forgiven iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. I want to preach a sermon that I've entitled Harboring Sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Jesus, this morning for this time you've given us to be here together. God, I pray that by the Holy Ghost, you will help me to minister this morning. God, touch your people. Father, I hide behind your cross, not by my charisma. God, my personality. Father, but by your spirit, God, you will deal with each and every single one of us. God, to stand up and break the curse. God, maybe here this morning, curses passed down from our parents and our parents' parents, that they'll be broken by the spirit of God, by the blood of Jesus. God, I thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said this morning, amen. I want to start off with my first thought, and that is slow to anger. This is God's character. In our text, we see mention some of the characteristics of God. The first one or the the ones that we see are slow to anger. 
in steadfast love. You think about this, the term slow to anger means that somewhere they're not reactive, that they don't aren't moved by the, just the first emotion that they feel, that somewhere they allow time to pass by. Aren't you glad this morning that God is slow to anger? Aren't you glad this morning that he isn't as reactive as us or as we have been, that somewhere God looks at us and begins to think about us, begins to plan for us. The Bible tells us in Jeremiah that his plans are great for us. Planning takes time. God looks at our life and begins to see the the shortcomings, the times we fail, the sins, the secret stuff that we hold on to. And he doesn't just judge us at the moment. If that was the case, none of us will be here this morning. But God looks at us and says, I have a plan for you. We see also the steadfast love aspect of God. We serve a loving God. That is, is beyond just, uh, that's an understatement that somewhere it's hard to even comprehend how good God is to us, how much he actually loves us. I was talking to a man a few days ago and I was telling him, one of the brothers, I was telling him it's hard to understand. There's times where I, I, I'm in prayer, I'm like, God, why do you love me so much? Why is it that you do these things? Why is it that somewhere I'm still standing and I still have a family? I'm still saying in my mind that I still have destiny. It's a steadfast love. This unwavering love. This unchanging love. That's who God is. And the result of these characteristics is the forgiveness of iniquity and transgression. We're here today because God has forgave us. No doubt you've heard all kinds of sermons on forgiveness. Think about this for a moment. God forgave you. The, the, the crimes, the sins, the decisions, the rejection, the moments you decided not to do something for God, the disobedience, and God looked at you and forgave you. He said, my son, my daughter, listen, let's forget about this and move on. What an incredible God. And our text specifically says, and I want you to notice these words, it says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. What an incredible thing. You know, sin, sin is the general term for anything that falls short of the glory of God. We know Romans 3.23, we can speak about that, how we all fall short of the glory of God. See, sin, when allowed to thrive, when not judged, when not dealt with, is led to a, a downward progression that without the restoring power of the Holy Spirit, without the blood of Jesus, we all go further and further, deeper and deeper into this sin. If left unchecked, continual sin leads to what Romans calls a reprobate mind. A mind that is all left to its own devices in rebellion to God, in rebellion to all things of God, and some were just left to all the pleasures and desires of our flesh. 
our sin nature causes us to gravitate naturally towards selfishness, envy, pride, lust. You can go on adultery, fornication, even when we're trying to do good. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, the very famous scripture where Paul says, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. That's the battle. That's the flesh. There's somewhere you do have the desire. You hear the sermons. You hear the encouragements. You hear all the words of God, and somewhere you're saying, I want to do good, but my flesh tends to carry other things out. The sin nature is what leads us to the word we see in our text, which is trust, transgression. See, transgression, very similar, very close to the word trespassing, and that's no mistake. It refers to a presumptuous sin. You know, King David, he says, God, free me from presumptuous sins. The word presumptuous means the failure to see a limit. The failure to see a line, this means you know it's there, but you, you ignore it. You, you decide not to, not to do it. It's the idea of trespassing. You know this belongs to someone else. It is not in your domain. It is not for you to go into, but you decide to still go into it. In Texas, what happens to trespassers? They get shot. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> they get shot in Texas. <laughs> Think about that. Because it does not belong to you. That's, that's transgression. It's crossing the line. See, a vivid picture of transgression can be Samson. Samson intentionally breaks the Nazarite vow by touching a dead lion. He breaks it again by allowing his hair to be cut. You can read this, Judges 16. 16. In doing so, he was committing a transgression. See, when we knowingly break rules, then the word sin becomes transgression. It's like when you run a stop sign and you holler out, no cop, no stop. That doesn't happen here, right? Or when you tell a lie, knowing it's a lie, you blatantly disregard an authority. We're transgressing. And see, unrepented transgression leads to iniquity. In Psalms 32, 5, the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And in this one verse, sin, iniquity, and transgression are all mentioned. Iniquity refers to a premeditated choice. See, the best way that you can describe this is there's a difference between manslaughter and murder. When somebody mistakenly does something and it causes the death of somebody else versus somebody who premeditated the action. To commit iniquity is to continue without repentance. You know you're wrong. And you know you're in the wrong. But you still decide to go. David is a clear example of this. 
David's sin with Bathsheba that led to the killing of her husband, Uriah, was iniquity. How many of you guys know David, David knew what he was doing? There's a difference between someone who stumbles and someone who planned their sin. There's a difference between a brother who comes up to you, a sister, and he says, I'm struggling, versus somebody who just doesn't care anymore, who begins to live a double life, who begins to plan out their things and begins to just cross the lines. Micah chapter 2, verse 1, listen to this warning. It says, woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. You can do whatever you want, church. This is the power that God has given you. This is the, the will that God has given you. You can carry out whatever you want to carry out. But believe me, there's a price to the decisions. There are consequences. In David's psalm of repentance, Psalms 51, he cries out to God saying, Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. No, the problem is we tend to take advantage of the good in others. That's human nature, isn't it? We do it to other people. We take advantage of the good of other people. And God many times isn't excluded from that. We take advantage of the good in God. I dare to say this morning, many church folks have taken what Jesus did on the cross as something that's common, something that's light. You know, Paul told us to beware of this tendency. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 says, how much, more, how much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? How much more? See, God's grace is not our free pass to sin. But it is, our, it is our freeing to righteousness. To get closer to God, it is our ticket to, do you know what, say, God, you're not separated from me. I can come to you with all my issues. That is what grace is. Grace should free you to live surrendered to his will. Not a slave to sin anymore. Romans 6 verse 1, a very famous text or chapter on sin verse 1 says what shall we say then are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means how can we who die to sin still live in it do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death we were buried before with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we Two, turn to your neighbor, tell him, we too. We too might walk in newness of life. It is this place where we can be a new creation, where we can be set free, where we don't have to deal with the consequences of our sins, transgressions, iniquities because of the grace of God. But listen to me this morning. If you're going to hide it, just remember my words, God will not be mocked. Many of you guys have heard that phrase before. It's interesting, the phrase, God will not be mocked. 
is often used, but I want you to hear the context of this. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You choose. We choose. No doubt you've heard that God hates sin. But I wonder if the hatred that God has for sin is because innocent people in the future are affected by it. See, your sin, our sin, if not dealt with, doesn't only affect us. It affects other people. Every once in a while you hear people in conversation about God, you hear them say, why does God force us to do whatever he wants us to do? Many times it comes from people who are struggling with atheism or the belief in God and they're saying it's a story. God just wants me to do whatever he wants. That doesn't sound like a loving God. But listen, that's not what's going on. Actually, the real question is why do we subject others to our consequences, to our decisions? In the future, listen, people will be dealing with the consequences of our sins today. Numbers 32, 23, but if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And be sure your sin will find you out. An incredible text. Before that, you can study it on your own. It speaks about getting right with God, being honest with God. And that's why it says, but, but if you will not do so, behold, remember, you sin against the Lord and your sin will find you out. It carries the same spirit. Whenever God is speaking to Cain, and he says sin is at the doorstep of your life and its desire is for you. The very same spirit when Jesus looks at Peter, calls him Satan. You remember that story? He says, listen, a desire is to swift you. I want to move on to my second thought. And that is how our sin affects others. No sin if you allow it can affect beyond your immediate reach. No doubt we understand that the wages of sin is death. And we know this, but many times we tend to forget that it goes beyond just our life. In our text, we see how it is made clear that our unwillingness to confess and repent reaches further than what we can. Sin has this futuristic dynamic to it. Over the human will, you can only do what you can for yourself today. You can plan for tomorrow, but we know that tomorrow's promised to nobody. But sin left unchecked has a reach that's beyond just your life. Touches your children, your children's children, to the third and, third and fourth generation. See, sin has a way to deceive us to think it's all going to be okay. This is what causes us to harbor sin and think that we're right with God. Those of you guys that you like studying laws and, and things like that, maybe criminal justice, you understand that harboring a criminal is a crime. 
And if somebody, I don't know, maybe put, vividly try to paint it for you, if somebody um, kills another person and he's running away from the cops and he passes by and he goes, hey, I need a place to stay. You open your door. You don't know them, but you give them a place because you want to be a good person. You're committing a crime. You're harboring somebody that committed a crime. Listen, this is the same picture this, the, of sin. That somewhere if you begin to harbor these things that you know go against God, it will affect you. It will affect your household. It will affect all kinds of different things. And as a matter of fact, it creates a curse that can travel through the blood. It's interesting. I've heard Pastor Campbell say, one day we're going to be in heaven and we're going to realize and be surprised how many things were spiritual. You know, mothers, when they're pregnant, if you speak rejection to your baby, that can be passed down. It's spiritual words. Your children, you call them all kinds of names. You do all kinds of things. That's spiritual. You pass it down. And it goes to them in their mind. They remember these things. How many of you remember what your, what your parents used to call you? Uh, this one person. <laughs> one of our church kids raised their hand back there. <laughs> It's passed down. It's passed down through the blood as a way to deceive us. This is what causes us to harbor it. Sin, listen, sin that is kept secret produces guilt. And guilt has a way of changing us. Even if the secret sin is never exposed or found out, it has a way of changing us from the inside out. Perhaps a spouse. Maybe, for instance, is unaware of a husband's addiction. Maybe it's drugs, maybe alcohol, pornography. But his addiction leads to a guilty secretiveness. It begins to change its attitude towards the spouse. And it begins to affect the marriage, the relationships. She begins to perceive the change. Speculates. And it goes on, maybe never exposed, but it begins to change the inside. You know, I understand generational curses are spiritual, but they're very visible. You can see it in people's lives. There's people here this morning, listen, you came when you got saved, you were under a curse and God broke it. And now you're in testimony. There's people here this morning, maybe you're still struggling with it. We could speak about the curse of drunkenness. You grew up, you watched your father be drunk every day, maybe even domestic violence, and somewhere you begin to struggle with that, and you, maybe you, you did struggle with that, and now your children, and so on and so on. You see it in teen pregnancies many times. The mother goes uh, becomes pregnant young in fornication, maybe some type of rape, and that begins to be passed down and passed down, and it's this demonic curse that needs to be broken. Children many times grow up seeing the dysfunction in their parents' marriage. Don't know what a good marriage looks like. So when you get married, or many times they don't even want to get married. You ever heard somebody like that? I don't want to get married because I saw my parents. But then they go into marriage and then they treat their wife or they treat their husband in this very same pattern. For church folks at times is the lack of commitment to the things of God. Is that somewhere you weren't committed to God. And that gets passed down because that's what children see. You know, we talk about gross sins being passed down. 
alcohol, drugs, fornication, adultery. But I've also seen bitterness. I've seen gossiping. I've seen rebellion issues with authority. Don't respect police officers. Don't respect authority in church. Don't respect all this. The, 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 the headship, and it gets passed down from generation to generation. And I'm here to tell you, someone has to break the curse. Someone has to do it. We know that the blood of Jesus can. We know God has the power to break the curse, but it requires somebody to stand up and say, I don't want this in my family anymore. Generational curses are deeply intertwined in families. Like I said, in the blood. Yet, they are simply broken. Simply broken. There's a, there's a book that was just released by Pastor Greg Mitchell. It's called The Healing Power. I want to encourage you, um, go and get it. One of the, um, we received a rough draft some, uh, and, and we were able to read some of the stuff. And one of the things that Pastor Mitchell said, he said he complicated, he overcomplicated healing. He said many times they'll, they'll lay hands or they'll come up. It's like, my back hurts. It's like, who are you bitter at? It's like, well, nobody. Well, you have to be bitter at somebody. And it's like, it's, it's just like this complicated thing. And he goes, somewhere he got the revelation. At the end of the day, it's the blood of Jesus that's going to heal him anyway. That we might go around and listen, there's a place for stuff like that. But, there, but at the end of the day, what needs, what's going to have the power to heal and break curses is the blood of Jesus. And here tonight, this morning, you might be sitting in your pew, in the section of your pew, and you're struggling with all these different things. Maybe it is lust. Maybe it's alcohol, drugs. Maybe, maybe it's bitterness or somewhere you have a spirit of gossiping, depression, anxiety, you name it. And you can link it back to your parents. You might even pray the prayer that I prayed. I've taught God, it's not my fault. I didn't do that. I didn't open that door. But I'm here to tell you that God can set you free. That God can break it. But you're going to have to stand up and say, I don't want this in my life anymore. Listen, without Jesus, we're left to the effects of our sins. We're left to the effects and consequences of the sins of our parents. Yet God created a solution for us. Listen to me this morning. Don't overcomplicate generational curses. There's only one thing that can break the yoke. And that is the anointing, the blood of Jesus Christ. I want to close with my third point, And then we're going to pray for some people. And that is a broken human and a gracious God. Let me tell you here this morning, you don't have to hide from God anymore. You don't have to hide from God anymore. You ever played hide and seek with a baby? <laughs> you can't even count to 10, right? But you, you wait for them to try. Then they go and run and then they hide somewhere you can really see them. And you have to kind of like pretend you don't see them. Oh, where, where is he? You know, you're like, I don't see you there under the chair. I wonder where he's at. <laughs> Listen, that's how we look when we try to hide from God. Hiding behind a pole and we're wider than the pole. <laughs> Listen, maybe you're living in a generational curse. As a matter of fact, maybe you realize this morning 
that the struggles and the things you're dealing with is actually a generational curse. Or maybe God has revealed to you that you're in danger of creating one. I want to tell you, don't wait till there's a catastrophe in your hands or in the hands of other people. Don't wait till you pass away and your children's children are digging through your stuff and they find that grenade. And they're like, this used to be grandfathers. I wonder if it works. Listen, come to God this morning. Bring your family this morning. I said this on Wednesday and I want to reiterate it. We will never outgrow confession and repentance. Doesn't matter how long you've been saved. Doesn't matter how much you know. You will never outgrow your need to repent. Our greatest need will always be to stay right with God. To repent, to live a life of repentance. And the beautiful thing about this as I close is that God won't reject a broken and contrite heart. Psalms 51 verse 17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. See, David was referring to this kind of sin, iniquity, transgression, when he wrote, Blessed is the one, in Psalms 32, 1, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Doesn't matter what kind of curse you're living in this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. God is offering that to you this morning. I will break the curse. I will cover your sins. I will forgive your iniquity. And you can leave this place a brand new creation. Everything being under the blood. See, under the blood, that term isn't only for new believers. It's for us also. Older saints, those that have been saved. Listen, you can say, that's under the blood. That's under the blood. Let's move forward. That's what forgiveness means. When you truly forgive someone, you don't hold them accountable for it. You don't tell them, listen, I forgive you, but from this day forward, you have to give me 20 bucks every week. Or you, a wife said to their husbands, I forgive you, but you're going to have to wash the dishes every Friday. It's not, it's not what God does. God says, I forgive you. Separate your sins from the east to the west, right? And it says, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. I'll, I'll for, I'll, I won't hold you accountable anymore. That's the God that we serve. And listen, this morning, I'm here to tell you, you don't have to live the way that you're living. You don't have to live in addictions. You don't have to be depressed and anxious anymore. You don't, you don't have to go through all these things. You can break the curse today and leave this place on a brand new path, a new trajectory for your life where your children, your children's children can benefit from your commitment to the will of God. Listen, I'm not asking you to be like anybody else. I'm asking you you to come to God and say, you know what, God, here I am. Here's my name. 
I, I see what everybody else is doing, but I, I want to come to you. And I want to give you my life, my heart. Everybody here, we're different. We've got different things that we've done. We've got different things that we've struggled with. Some might be the same. We're pretty common as people. But that we can come to God and say, God, I just want to be honest with you. I just want to be sincere. This is who I am. I'm depressed. I'm addicted. I'm, I'm broken. I need help. I need help. If you could do that this morning, listen, God will lift you up. Lift you up a brand new man, a brand new woman. And you can leave this place changed for the rest of your life. Not operating under the curse anymore. Not operating under the decisions of others, but operating by you and God. Don't harbor it. There's no need for it. God already knows. God already knows. There's no need for you to hide it, put it away somewhere. Just come sincere. God, here I am. Can I get every head bowed and every eye closed? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Listen, I want to encourage you here this morning to hear, have an open ear to the Spirit of God. I'm just the messenger. But what I'm praying is that the Spirit of God might move upon the hearts and minds of people in this place. That you would move away any type of preconceived notions about church, about God, and just sit there and think, God, I'm here. Me and me alone. My heart, my mind is yours. And I want to be different. I want, I want to change. I don't want to live this way anymore. In the book of Acts, when Peter preaches the powerful sermon, when 3,000 men get saved, they get up and they say, what must we do next? It was a moment like this. An altar call like this. There was an opportunity presented they took it, and from that day forward, see the, the, the question, what must we do next, implies that they had surrendered. God, I don't want it to just be a moment. I don't want it to just be another emotional, religious moment. God, I want to leave this place and know what's next. What's next for my life? What do you want me to do? What's next for my family? What's next for all of these different aspects of my life. You're here this morning. You're not saved. You're not right with God. If you're to die at this moment, heaven will not be your home. You want to change that. The Bible says you believe in your hearts, which is the first step, but then you confess with your mouth, mouth unto salvation. You believe it in your heart right now, but confess it. That's you. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you. See that hand, that honest heart. I see that hand. I see those hands. Hallelujah. God's moving in this place. Anybody else? Raise it high. Raise it high so we know it's you. Amen. Praise God. No shame in the game. Maybe you're backslidden. You used to be right with God, but today you're far from him. You want to reconcile, rededicate your life to God. You, you, you're serving him, but today you're far from him, and you're saying, I want to... 
I want to give my life to Jesus. That's you. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I want to pray for you. I see that hand. Many hands up. We need altar workers. Amen. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, every single one of us, if you raise your hand, would you look up at me? Did you mean that? Did you mean that? Did y'all mean that over there? Did you mean that? Hallelujah. I believe you did. Why don't you stand up? Stand up and come forward. I want to pray for you. Amen. God's dealing with, with people. We need altar workers. Amen. I want to change the order of the service this morning. I want to speak to Christians. I want to speak to the church. Beloved, listen, this is something that we must create a lifestyle for. We need to always come to God in sincerity. I made a statement earlier in the sermon. I said there's a difference between somebody who's struggling versus somebody who's just practicing. The Bible uses the word practicing. Practicing sin. See, struggle implies that you're putting some pressure back. That he, that sin pushes you and you push back. You're trying to move forward on it. We all struggle at times. Listen, don't harbor sin. Maybe you're here, you're saved. You're on the way to heaven, but you're cursed. Somewhere you're dealing with something that was passed down from generations. Might not be drugs, it might not be alcohol. Might not be lust like pornography or something like that. You've broken that, that's so you move past that. Or maybe it's bitterness, rebellion. Maybe it's anger, rage, anxiety, depression. And you're saying, I don't want that anymore. I want to break that. I, sh- I don't want it. And I sure don't want my kids to have it. Let's all stand up to our feet this morning. We're going to open up these altars. I want to encourage you to come and deal with God. Come and break it. We're going to pray for some people. And I believe that in that prayer, there's going to be people who just got saved, people who just rededicated their life. And there will always, and there will also be church people who will be, God, I recognize this. Thank you for revealing it to me, but I'm ready to break it right now in Jesus' name. I want to encourage you, listen, be honest. Let go of all the religion. Let go of all the different things that you might think about your neighbor. I just don't want to look a certain type of way. Forget ministry. Just say, you know what, God, I am here by myself. God, deal with me. I don't want to leave this place. I've prayed at men's class. Listen, I prayed, God, I don't want to leave this place the same. I want to be changed for the rest of my life. Can this service be that for you? Oh, hallelujah. I feel the Spirit of God here in this place. We're going to sing out this song.